Hello everyone, welcome to Tuesday Conversation with Friends. And today I have with me violinist Corey Lee. I met Corey about nine years ago, actually at the Carnegie Hall. He was performing there, so was I, we met, and I realized this is a very unusual musician. So to tell you a little bit about Corey, and uh, this is the cute part. His mother was, a, still probably is a Suzuki violin teacher. So he started playing on a tissue box taped with a ruler since he was two and a half. And then, of course, later on, this tissue box player ended up at Juilliard and later on at Yale, finished your master's degree there, and then had a very unusual performance career. And uh, first, he developed a, uh, a basically, it's called Liberated Performer, which is helping people to overcome anxieties which are associated with performing and auditioning and I think sometimes that even affects the way a person practices because you recall the anxiety you experience so then he joined a group called Ethel and uh, they are the resident artists there uh, what, what do you guys call yourselves as the as the for for the Met uh, we we uh, in normal times uh, we we work at the balcony bar which is uh, live music Friday, Saturdays, uh, 5 p.m. through 8 p.m. And when we're on tour, uh, we bring in our friends or local musicians and, you know, they entertain the crowd there. But yeah, it's uh, been awesome. And then during COVID, uh, we uh, work on the Facebook um, version of the Balcony Bar. Right. I watched so, some of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Assemble digital media and uh, just try to give a really relaxing vibe or very, you know, pr present different artists on on the platform. Corey, uh, the group that you're part of is Ethel and it's a chamber music group, but it's not your regular chamber music group. So when you go perform at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, how much can you explore with uh, those unusual ideas you guys come up with? Um, for the, the balcony bar, it's not like a, a full life concert where you have you know, access to screens or anything, but we're just amplified and we get to share the music of our friends, uh, which usually come from very diverse types of cultures. So we're always open to uh, anybody's repertoire, uh, not just um, Western music, mm. uh, but we love to collaborate and learn, most importantly, learn from collaborators like uh, Robert Mirabal, who's a Native American flute player. Uh, he definitely teaches you something about um, performance practice and just um, presentation and the different colors and improvisation hmm. and different South American rhythms and things like that. I mean, it's like really interesting. <laughs> um, wow. So we get to present, you know, all, all sorts of different uh, types of cultures and, and music styles. Wow. Um, but I'm in terms of like multimedia, where it's just, yes. it's more just like a normal experience <laughs> well it's already multimedia just by being inside the museum because people are going to have oh, yeah. other stimulations right so yeah, yeah that's, that's true, interesting yeah. right and that's something i do miss about being able to go to the live performances in new york city particularly there's a lot of um, unusual programming and i remember one of the last concerts i did in new york was all Spanish. Of course, a Chinese person doing a Spanish program. And uh, and it was exploring the Cuban colonialism. And uh, so it was very interesting. 
But uh, but that's the kind of diversity I think sometimes we we really enjoy, and uh, sometimes it's missed in other parts of the country or even the world. And uh, so so I thank you for for working on that type of projects because I think it makes it so interesting. And uh, and we will be able to watch some of the clips uh, from Ethel because the you, now talk to me a little bit about what that group is. What is your core value for that group? Ethel is fundamentally, you know, a string quartet, right? We have our instrumentation are two violins, one viola and a cello. But at the, the, the core of it is really like exploration. Um, I wouldn't, maybe innovation, but just, you know, again, curiosity, you know, willing to try things out, uh, bringing people together through music, you know, as a community, right? Reaching out through music to uh, different cultures to bridge the gap, right? And uh, that kind of exploration, curiosity, and uh, community focus really uh, helps us produce our, our musical content and have organic, you know, forming, uh, authentic, I should say, authentic forming programs, uh, such as the river, right, with, the, with our longtime friend, and just amazing inspiration, Robert Mirabal, as I mentioned earlier. Um, or we can play with the jazz pianist, uh, Lawrence Hobgood, who's an absolute genius, who just challenges us harmonically like crazy. You know, mm -hmm. coming from a classical background and going to jazz, I'm like, whoa, way over oh, my I head. I know, right? Wow. Thankfully, you know, Kip Jones is is the jazz guy. He went to Berkeley, so he really coaches us on, on just, you know, uh, styles and how to hear things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely was not trained at Juilliard like that. Wow. Although there's yes. I, the amazing jazz at Juilliard. <laughs> right. For sure. That's, that's one of my favorite right? memories. Um, yeah. I just yeah. had a conversation with somebody last night because um, I was talking about for a lot of schools like Juilliard, like where I went to school at SC, um, you actually have good jazz programs, but it's or but it's so detached from what I experienced at the conservatory style training that it just, I almost didn't realize they were there because it's so detached. Yeah. And uh, I did another interview with a cellist, Eugene Friesen. I don't know if you're familiar with Eugene and he teaches at Berkeley and he's um, part of a trio. And he, he was obviously trained as a, as a classical cellist, but he departed and gone into a lot of improv work and his work is not only to perform as a cellist who improvs as was well classical, but he also teaches other string players to improv. So now, Corey, how did you embark on this journey? Because your training starting with a Suzuki on a tissue box. <laughs> I love that story. It's so awesome. I need you to tell the story. Tell the story, then we're gonna go on. <laughs> well, yeah, my mom's a Suzuki teacher. So all the pre-twinklers like, um, basically very, uh, I guess, toddlers, I guess, right, you know, like two and a half, three, four, five years old. Um, the first violin is usually a Kleenex box taped with a ruler as a scroll. And then you can have some sort of stick, maybe like two chopsticks or like one long wooden stick. Um, but the, the idea behind that is to start familiarizing yourself with the violin, listening to music, listening to other people play in group classes, 
um, learning how to bow, take a bow on stage, mm -hmm. uh, learning the basic rhythms of twinkles, like tucka, tucka, stop, stop, you know, yes. like that, you know, with, with your friends, it's a very social environment. Mm. Um, and then of course, if you drop your violin, it's not a big deal. It's literally an empty <laughs> Kleenex box. <laughs> or you, you can, can step right on there or sit on it. You know? <laughs> I mean, but that, that's also part of the training is to kind of respect the instrument um, because it is valuable. Even if it is a Kleenex box, right? You're teaching you know, a good principle there. That's so yeah. and then wow, that's cute actually. And yeah. then <laughs> and then yeah, just uh, growing up in the Suzuki culture was probably the best because literally um, it's so social. Like it's not like oh, every toddler that walks in is going to be the next Itzhak Perlman. It's like you get to grow into whoever you want to be um, in a very social. Uh, gather like a group in a very social group so like i have many very close friends that are from group class <laughs> and i mean that's that's the some of the stuff that keeps you going for sure and it's the social aspect corey has a you have a great sense of humor and uh, that's what struck me when i first met you and of course then during the process of preparing for our conversation today, I I did a little social media snooping and I I saw your clip on the YouTube, which you guys, if you Google Corey Lee violinist, you can probably find this clip. And that's the little violin, the little Pagani. The next piece is Pagani Caprice number five.
and tried to look for this clip again. All I found was a bunch of six-year-olds playing back in the evening. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but, I know, the complex that's given to, to people who are grown-ups, you know, and let's talk about that a little bit because we talked about part of your work is working with people's anxieties and audition preparations. And uh, you talked about the kids nowadays are just getting better and better and better. And Tell me a little bit about your experience working with students and working with your fellow musicians on, on those type of things and what, you, what you're seeing nowadays that may be a little different than 10 years ago, or are they, are they different? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely different. Um, so 10 years ago, I was on my own personal journey to try to figure the whole audition and anxiety and performance thing out. Like I'd, I would be practicing for hours, doing all my homework, and you know doing well in the practice room but when it came to the stage like i definitely had some obstacles to overcome and some confusion too because like we're all taught that like oh if you practice more then you'll be fine but that's totally not the case and i've been lucky to work with literally all ages so i think the oldest person i've worked with was 66 or something wow. um, with stage fright in an orchestra um, and then obviously, you know, younger kids at Suzuki camps as well. And then you have teenagers at, you know, like the New York Youth Symphony uh, that are auditioning for either the orchestra or for college uh, to major in music. So it's like a whole wide range of um, talent levels, uh, life experiences, uh, especially with the age gap. Um, but it, it all comes down to kind of some fundamental things like, you know, are you okay with you know, being rejected socially. And also, do you have, also, do you have like a really good preparation process that can help you even if you do get a little bit nervous? You know? And I think uh, over the, the 10 years, it's really changed because back when I was um, younger and in school trying to figure this out for myself, um, a lot of the strategies um, were, were managing techniques. So they would help you manage it, you know? So we all know that breathing deeply and visualization, all that stuff helps. And I still use it. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's great stuff. It's like timeless uh, strategies, you know, used for sports, used for the Super Bowl, et cetera. So it's, it's something to learn for sure, but it's really the second step, which is to be really okay with yourself and mm -hmm. to be able to go on stage and just focus on your plane and just really enjoy the moment and to not be worried about making mistakes, which ironically helps you perform better uh, than if you were worrying about mistakes. Um, but that kind of transition to being quote unquote liberated mm -hmm. from, you know, this social judgment and as an artist, like you gotta, you gotta be that or else you're just going to be either stuck in a box in a way mm -hmm. or 
yeah, I mean, you just you're just gonna be stuck and you can't express yourself, and that's that limits your communication. Right. And I think really the nail in the coffin for this point is that when you talk to big international competition winners, right? Which the you most are. like <laughs> pressure build whatever. Right? <laughs> um, they they always go on the final round, and you ask you ask them, oh, how'd you play so well? It's like it's like oh, I just focused on myself. I didn't really care of the outcome. And I think that's a huge mindset shift from trying to get the validation of other people, you know, and growing your your tough skin to to respond to rejection, whether it's a newspaper or a, a friend or a family member. It's like that's that's a big point. Is to be truly liberated in this this box that we put ourselves in, and also the culture, specifically of classical music, mm -hmm. uh, puts yes. on on a performer. So that, I think that's a shift that I'm trying to push for, which is kind of why why I why I just so passionate about it, <laughs> and why it's so rewarding is because you get to reach especially like the, you know the teenagers who are just about to you know go into college or something, and with this mindset they can hopefully navigate better and come out a stronger performer like much faster than mm. than me, well, or even even if working with all older older person you know to finally get a consistent you know maybe last year before retirement uh just these nice free experiences without beta blockers to just enjoy the music and play and enjoy the moment i think the contradiction in this whole thing is you somehow have to care but not care you know yeah and i think you have to be driven by the value that you know you want to produce something you know awesome Mm -hmm. uh, but you yourself should validate it, not somebody else. And I think it's interesting because I think in a conservatory environment, that is a real challenge. You're amongst a lot of very talented people. And they're only people who are in your class. Now, you think about all the people who are coming in and the people who are already out there. It could be a very daunting thought. And uh, it could be paralyzing. Yeah, I I think um, that experience pushes you to be um, really good at your instrument mm -hmm. or your, your craft. Mm -hmm. And there is no lie that my classmates kicked my butt and continue to inspire me today. Mm. But ultimately yeah. they're, not, they're not the audience. No. Um, they are part of the audience. Mm -hmm. But in conservatory, you get so focused on that audience. It, it gives you kind of weird experiences. So. That's why a lot of times what um, we do in, let's say a coaching session mm -hmm. is we go out and play in public. Well, how did you connect with your group? Because um, your group was already in existence for quite a while before you joined them and they already had a vision, right? Um, my last year at Juilliard, one of the members of, former members of Ethel came in and spoke in this business uh, class talking about all the wild gigs so I wasn't ready for the, the message. <laughs> um, but then after Yale, I was, I was already, you know, creating a lot of different uh, explorations mm -hmm. uh, about how to, you know, say use an electric violin, uh, use guitar pedals, use mm -hmm. guitar sound effects, use software programs like uh, DAWs, like Ableton, um, MIDI foot pedals, um, and using it uh, to 
trying to remake some of the classics. So I started off very classical, um, for example, and with the simple idea of looping uh, the Bach partita, which happens to be harmonically the same for multiple movements, and just kind of layering them, layering, layering them over each other. So I was already on this path of just like being very curious about, you know, what can happen. And then uh, upon graduation, I moved to New York and I got really lucky because right after graduation, the former member of Ethel knew me and recommended for me to audition. Mm -hmm. So I checked out Ethel's stuff this time, you know, a few years later after that Juilliard class. And I was, I was like, this is, this is an awesome group. They fundamentally align with both my values, like in you know my type of playing and curiosity and i was like oh let's let's do it you know because you would see these multimedia projects like documerica which took the archive of the epa and put mu composed music to it um you would see all these different types of collaborations with other cultures and music and that's i was like all right i'm going to learn so much from these uh these people which i still do and we're going to be curious you know, together and make some weird stuff, <laughs> work really hard at it, um, try to sell it, perform, <laughs> you know, and just be fearless. Um, and so I was like, all right. So I, I, I actually used um, the liberated performer preparation process to, to make sure I went in there and knock it out of the park. So I, I felt really confident about my preparation. And on a cold day, I went in there for the first round, got called back, did it again. And then before you know it, I'm I'm playing <laughs> with oh, cool. Ethel. That's yeah. so and awesome. And it's been been with them for uh, 2015, so I guess almost six years. Wow, wow. Going on six years. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so really opened my eyes to what you can do as an artist. We took a couple months to really get in the groove of producing uh, these 20 minute videos, presenting different artists, mm. of course, sharing the stage. That's, that's huge with Ethel to always share the stage mm. um, and to put it on Facebook. And it, it, I think that it's reached a lot of people. Um, I would say it's not big for, for like social media numbers, but I think it's around maybe like 17,000 you know, each, awesome. each Friday. Wow, that's um, a lot. And, and it's cool because we get to, we get to reconnect with our, our friends and meet new people. Mm. And even though sometimes we become the editors, we get to really do the Ethel thing, which is to communicate and, and collaborate. It's, it's been good uh, direction into the digital world. Um, the, the other thing we're doing is we're, we're also fundamentally preparing for what's after COVID. The other um, object, uh, digital goals we're going for uh, resulted in an exploration of digital uh, products, I guess. Not products, but like uh, pieces, digital pieces. Mm -hmm. For example, we're looking into 360 right now um, and creating uh, environments with our music possibly with us in it too. Um, but we're looking at that, that form because we, we find it pretty interesting. And we have uh, a great community that we can reach from that will help us build that.
because with collaboration with all the multimedia stuff we do, it's always because we we have good collaborators That's and we allow them to collaborate. Can we I mean, it's both ways, but yeah. a little bit because I think collaboration is a huge thing. And um, but to collaborate successfully, you have to have a particular mindset. I found that one of the keys that I believe in is to leave room for the other person to let them uh, express to not let is not even the right word because that that's implying that one person or one group is in charge versus the true collaboration is coming together and 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 the little ideas grow together so can you talk a little bit about your experiences with Ethel and with the collaborators and how you work together a behind the scene kind of a foray into how do you make that happen yeah um, yeah, joining Ethel has really taught me a lot about collaboration because before Ethel, I was just collaborating on my own, really. <laughs> I mean, if there's the tech equipment, you would, and my you know, toys, right? <laughs> yeah, because like there was nobody really else out there um, at that time. Um, but um, yeah, working with all sorts of different types of collaborators really helps kind of shine a light on what's important. For example, visual artist, mm. uh, projection designer, um, costume person, you know, like different musical styles, different technique that was built in for their instrument, all that stuff. It immediately forces you to have an open mind to create an open space. And yeah. that that comes from the curiosity, you right. know, the that that kind of trait is like you don't come with a game plan. It's like you come with that open mind and it sounds cheesy but that's actually where some of the best work is created it's like how do you make authentic um collaborations it's when when both are like you know openly going back and forth and then you have like 80 ideas and then it's down to two ideas and it's like oh that's the one right and of course you can collaborate the other way when people are like okay i'm gonna hire you to do this soundtrack do right. the score and that's totally fine but more the ethical collaboration is creating a space where you can go back and forth um now of course that gets really um kind of frothy and you know like oh let's just do this and like uh, so you know there are some guiding stars like mm -hmm. is is are there technical limitations like working with the visual artist you know mm -hmm. doing design like are there technical limitations to the performance venues we're at yes there are okay so that's got to be something that that boxes our creativity in, which is good because without guidelines and and you know structure creativity is actually a little bit harder sometimes because so, the possibilities could be endless and then you can't really yeah. along with and with a framework yeah. which you need a framework yeah. framework helps you to build around it that's a difference i think between a framework exactly. and a box a box you 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 you're jammed into that shape with a framework you you build on it and uh, yeah. and uh, and I think it's so true because I remember when I when I would talk speak with uh, various people about collaborating with certain multimedia projects, and the first thing they often say is, "Oh, tell me what do you want me to do? Uh, is there a theme, a thing you want me to do?" And I would say, "No, not really, uh, but maybe we can discuss uh, the type of repertoire that I think 
I would like to express through for this program. And then you tell me what your thoughts are. But it's, it's, it's so more often than not that the people I spoke with um, initially didn't know what to do with that. And then mm -hmm. after the first communication, when they realized I really meant what do you want to do? And they're so excited because now they can be free. Yeah. Now they can be free. And then very interesting things like that happens, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's exactly right on point. That's right. the creation behind you. I mean, that yes. would not exist. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's something you can never just exist. direct somebody to do. It's like that, that came from within. Yeah, yeah. because for those of you who don't know, this was a piece that was painted on stage during one of my performances where it was multimedia and it was me and another pianist and uh, a live artist who's on stage and a movie screen size screen above, behind all of us, above us, that was showing my friend's original photography. And uh, there were times the light was com almost completely muted except the screen and you hear the music coming out of the darkness. And then the red lights would shine on me as I was seeing certain music. And then the lights sometimes will move to the artist. And this artist painted this on stage based on how he felt because of what was going on around him. And then he said this was a picture of my voice and so I had to have it and uh, but you cannot pre-plan those things you cannot pre-plan those things you you do have enough logistics but there are certain yeah. things that really happens because this is so corny but it's so true because of the inspiration strikes you know <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yes so now that sounds so exciting and uh I've always, uh, the first time I met Corey was uh, when he was performing a piece and uh, talk about the piece and what you did with it for, for with us. That was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> I had a, a quick set. I started with John Curigliano's Red Violin Caprice and I wanted to um, turn it into kind of like a guitar shred solo on the acoustic violin, um, kind of like a show opener. And then I went to Bach Partita number one, which is, um, as I mentioned earlier, there, uh, there's one movement and then there's a second movement who shares the same harmony. So I wanted to do that looping on stage, um, live looping on stage. So, re so record the first movement, then um, play the se uh, second movement on top of that, et cetera. And uh, I wanted to really push the, the artistic challenge of looping because looping itself is usually you know very short things with a strict rhythm mm -hmm. but with the Bach it's so free in time you know the Baroque style mm -hmm. um, you can't calculate it you just have to practice it a bunch <laughs> and just kind of listen and respond um, but that was a, the fun challenge for me for that uh, so then it would have it went from one kind of guitar acoustic shred solo to two violins even though it's just me on stage still with a a cheap uh, looping station from Guitar Center, uh, <laughs> which I think is still working. No, I gave it to one of my students. All right, yeah. Um, it's and then, still working in somebody else's house. Right? <laughs> it's a, a hand-me-down. And then uh, the third piece I played was uh, Violin Phase by Steve Reich, which was originally meant for either multiple violinists or a pre-recorded track. 
and since it was minimalism, it had um, just one one um, recurring uh, musical thing, and it would be um, again live looped. Uh, so I would record it, and then it would just play over and over, and then I would play the exact same thing over it to make the next phase and then again and again. And I wanted to to use my guitar pedals. So I, I took my uh, organic violin sound through the microphone, put it through a guitar effect of the octave, just a simple octave effect, dropped it down to kind of hit the viola range or the, the cello range. Mm -hmm. And then I dropped it down again as the piece went on to make uh, a bass, um, kind of electronic bass sound again through the organic um, sounding violin form. It, it wasn't like pre-recorded. So it was like all live looping, all live um, sound effects. And by the end of the set, um, it was kind of this wall of sound kind of phasing in and out um, as a piece uh, dictates. The timing is not just super rhythmic. It just, it fluctuates. It phases in and out and then it reaches a pattern and then it phases it in and out and then reaches another pattern. So yeah, just um, doing, doing my arrangements of those. Um, it was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was there. It was really exciting indeed. <laughs> yes, yes. Wow. It was awesome. Well, Corey, it's been so awesome to catch up with you. It's been a long time since I've spoken with you. And uh, I've been, I've been you know, watching what you've been doing for the past nine years. And it's just been exciting to see all the things started happening and growing. And uh, uh, I saw some of the things that you posted uh, for, that you've done with Ethel. It's just, just, just really fun and exciting. And I hope we will have the opportunity to have another conversation that maybe after COVID is over and after everything starts to run again, because I have a feeling um, after this year, year and a half, God knows how much longer, but hopefully not much longer. Um, I think the creativity that will come out of this and the, on the other end will be very different. And I would love to have another conversation then to maybe find out what did you and your group do? Um, Definitely. I think we got a lot of exciting projects coming up. So that's exciting. I'd yeah. love to hear more about it. I'm sure other people would as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. And until next time, and thank you, Corey. And so hopefully another time we're going to have another conversation. Definitely. Yes. So see you next time. All right. Thanks, Sheila.